Greetings, and welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode of the Net Positive features a conversation with Craig Ebert. He's the Executive Director of Climate Action Reserve, a nonprofit organization that certifies carbon offsets. Craig has just been in Glasgow as part of the Conference of Parties 26, COP26. Delighted to have him join the show. Hey, Craig. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah. Not too busy, but I think for all the right reasons. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for, for joining us for an episode of the Net Positive Podcast. My pleasure. Hey, let's, let's jump in. Uh, how, how was Glasgow? I want to hear about COP26 from a seasoned uh, perspective. How was it? Well, there's a number of different answers to that. Let me start with uh, our personal experiences. And what I mean by that is that each year, uh, the Climate Action Reserve, along with our sister organization, the Climate Registry, has hosted the uh, U.S. subnational delegation, the COP. Uh, This year, that was wildly successful. We had the largest delegation ever, 180 delegates from 15 states. That included six governors. For the first time ever, we decided to host our own pavilion. We called it the pathway to 1.5 degrees. Um, the point was to provide a venue to for the states to d- discuss all of their various efforts to actually do something about climate change rather than simply talk about long-term commitments, uh, as well as provide a venue for delegates to meet in private. It uh, was very successful. We had a whole series of events that are now uh, posted on YouTube and available for folks to, to watch a wide variety of different types of speakers. We were located right next to the U.S. Uh, federal p- pavilion. And, uh, you know, except for the disruptions when people like Obama, Kerry, and Buttigieg came on, it was, it was fine. <laughs> uh, you know, COP26 itself, in terms of the outcome, I mean, part of this honestly depends on what you were expecting going into it. I have been attending COP since COP3 in Kyoto. This is my 13th one. And frankly, I'm out of patience for the, uh, uh, what Greta Thunberg calls the blah, blah, blah. And there was a lot of that in Glasgow. Uh, You know, however, I, you know, I went into it with fairly low expectations and there was a, uh, I think a general sense of optimism that built throughout the two weeks of COP because there was a general recognition across all countries that we need to do something about this. Now, I think many of us could agree that that response is perhaps too little too late, but I think that that need to come to an agreement helped drive a fair amount of optimism. And we saw a variety of of good outcomes on that. Uh, You know, it started uh, early on in COP with many heads of state committing to even stronger commitments that they made in the past. Now that's nice, but those commitments have to be followed up by action. And I think the collective takeaway was that even if all of those stronger commitments were, uh, were actually, uh, uh, you know, came to pass that the total warming on the planet would be 2.4 degrees, not 1.5. And that's assuming it's all gets implemented in a timely fashion. 
one of the takeaways is that countries are, are asked to come back to COP27 next year in Egypt with even stronger commitments. Uh, there are other nice takeaways from that. That included the, the coal phase down, not phase out. Uh, there was some additional pledges to increase funding. I think the US-China cooperation was huge and there were a variety of other things, but maybe I should just stop there before I get into the details, but I'll let, let you decide which direction you wanna go. Well, I, no, I appreciate it. And um, I appreciate your 13 uh, years of going to COPs, going to these COPs, these conference of parties. And, and I know you and I have chatted about your, uh, your impatience, but also your understanding of the process. And it's, it, seems, it, it certainly seems incremental, but essential that everybody continues to talk. And Craig, uh, how interesting that you had your own pavilion and you took this, your state leaders and, and others. How does it work? I mean, for somebody who's never been to a COP, it sounds like there's sort of a main proceeding going on and then there's all sorts of pavilions and other meetings. And what's that, that were you there the whole time doing that or is that just part of the time or how does that work? I was actually there the second week. I tend to go the second week because that's when the uh, ministerial delegations show up to roll up their sleeves, make hopefully the final tough decisions and actually craft an agreement. The, uh, you know, and as I said, uh, my first one was 1997 at, at Kyoto at COP3. You know, there was, uh, those negotiations tend to happen largely behind the scenes. Yes, there are some events you can go watch, some of the de deliberations in public, uh, either in person or uh, oftentimes on, uh, on screens. But frankly, a lot of the deal making gets made behind closed doors. And, but that's the official negotiating component of, of COP. And that's critically important, obviously. I've often described the rest of it as sort of a parallel conventions to the negotiations. Uh, and, and there tend to be two uh, corresponding events, one called the Blue Zone, which are uh, uh, often accredited organizations and states from uh, by the UNFCCC. Uh, and and that, that really is almost like a convention type atmosphere. There's a variety of events going on. And then there's a green zone typically outside the, the boundaries of the venue, which is uh, typically very popular with uh, those who couldn't get credentials to get into the venue. And there's, uh, in past years, there's been a lot of action within the green zone. This year, there was not. Within the blue zone, uh, you know, that's where our pavilion is located. And, you know, I think most people spend their time in the blue zone, visiting different pavilions, attending different types of events. Uh, and that gives you a wide variety of, of opportunities to hear from different countries and different organizations from around the world that are focused on different aspects of the climate crisis. Right. How interesting. Then, in, Explain how, the, how there could be a lot of activity in the green zone or action around, you know, I get it, that there's sort of this outside ring, it's people that are having, an, that are influencers in our global society, they want to be impactful. How does that work? Well, I must confess, I don't know the details of how they actually sign up. And everyone who was at COP26 were surprised at how subdued the green zone activities were this year. I'm not sure why that happened. It was 
not right next door to the main venue, uh, the Glasgow Convention Center. So maybe that contributed to it, uh, but for whatever reason, uh, uh, it, it tends to, to be uh, it was a little on the quiet side of this year. It's an opportunity really for any organization to set up uh, their own shop and get their message out. It's often the scene of uh, very vocal demonstrations, uh, sometimes which they start at the green zone and march over to the blue zone to remind everybody that uh, this is a serious issue and you're not making enough progress on it. And they would be right. Right. So it's a more almost an acupuncture exercise of, uh, of trying to pressure in and bring, bring pressure to bear on this inner, this blue zone, and then by extension by that, the official negotiations that are going on. Yeah. For the rest of us, whether we're in the blue zone or the green zone, I've often called it a climate groupie convention because we're not part of the negotiations typically, but we have a keen interest in the outcome. So we're all there uh, pressing different perspectives on the problem and what we can do about it. Now, you, you mentioned that everything was fine except when Obama and Kerry and Buttigieg came through. What was, what, why, how did that change your dynamic there? Well, simply by geographic pro proximity to the U.S. federal pavilion. We were right next door to it, and the security starts locking things down, the crowds gather, uh, and uh, it, it's a little bit like the, you know, the rock star is coming through. It, it tends to shut down activity in, in, the, uh, in that vicinity, which often included our pavilion. So we managed to keep operating. I don't, I don't want to overblow that. That's just part of, uh, part of the experience, I, I think. But uh, not surprisingly, they've got to worry about security with heads of state and former heads of state uh, or senior officials like that. So uh, uh, it, it tends to have its own uh, traveling chaos. I can imagine. How, how was the COVID protocol? Uh, you bring people in from all over the world. What was 196 countries? Uh, how was that handled? Quite strict, although not 100% successful. Uh, I know there were folks that did come down with COVID and had to be quarantined, but uh, I had to get what was, everyone had to get what was called a PCR test within 72 hours of departure in order to even get on the plane. Upon landing, you had to repeat that test within 48 hours of your arrival. In order to get into the venue every day, you had to do a self-administered lateral flow test, report that to the UK health system. And uh, you know, if it was a negative result, they would give you documentation of that. You had to show that to the guards to get into the venue. And if you didn't have that, they wouldn't let you in. Um, and, and they were very strict about that. Uh, towards the tail end of it, you also then had to repeat those same tests, the PCR tests, to get another one prior to your departure within 48 hours to demonstrate that you're, again, good to leave. So they had overall quite strict protocols. They were limiting attendance uh, uh, across the, the venue and trying to maintain social distancing. You can't put 25,000 people, even in a large convention location, and expect them to social distance. Having said that, uh, they were limiting attendance at events. In our pavilion, we actually plan mostly to, to do it as a, a virtual studio presentation. That is not to count on people actually showing up. That worked out quite well. And uh, we recorded everything and posted it uh, on our uh, website. And it, it's all on YouTube right now. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more about the outcomes. I really like what you said about the, the general recognition 
that we need to be doing something about this. And, and now, I mean, there just seems to be a global recognition. And then I've read all sorts of critiques of COP26 that it, you know, ultimately fell short of the goals that uh, were kind of kicking the can down the road to next year. Uh, but that incremental uh, progress, uh, just bringing people together and agreeing to get together again, sort of counts as a win. Do you feel, is that sort of ba a balanced view that, yeah, you got to get together, you got to keep this process going. We're not getting what we want, but we have to keep it rolling along. Some people have characterized that as a qualified success. Part of it depends on your perspective, but let me make it abundantly clear. Humanity is failing itself by not taking a, aggressive enough action to deal with this problem. The scientists are telling us that we've got to have global emissions by 2030 and get to net zero by 2050 or shortly thereafter to limit warming to 1.5. We're already at 1.1. We're kidding ourselves. We think we're on any sort of path to make that doable right now. It's going to take a Herculean effort and a Herculean uh, change of focus across the planet to make reach those goals. So we're not helping ourselves out by any stretch of the imagination. Now, having said that, there were good outcomes out of COP26, but you know, I was naive enough to come out of Kyoto, COP3, thinking that was the beginning of the end of this problem. Turns out it wasn't even the end of the beginning. Now, maybe COP26 is the end of the beginning, but you know, Ted, it's COP26. This problem has been bloody apparent to all of us for decades now. Uh, the seriousness of it is there. We are frying our planet and, and uh, the lovely biosphere that we survive in. We're not doing nearly enough to, to salvage our world. And it's, I'm not surprised that uh, uh, the younger generations in particular are pretty irritated at the rest of us for our slow pace. And, are you, and can you point the finger? Um, I know that India and China have been given a lot of flack for sort of watering down the, the phase down of coal as opposed to the phase out of coal. But I, I think, Craig, you're going to say, hey, the U.S. is every bit as, every bit as culpable here in this, in, in this situation. If you want to know who's at fault here, I suggest everybody look in a mirror. Because you can try to point the finger at one country versus another, and, and there are legitimate arguments to raise, including the U.S., Yes, we made stronger commitments, but in terms of actually implementing all those commitments, we're a far cry from achieving those goals, and those goals are insufficient. So, you know, everyone shares blame in this. Uh, one positive aspect is that while there were objections being raised in Glasgow, there were no countries or blocked countries simply trying to block an agreement. There is recognition we've got to do something here. And that is a positive outcome. It's not a sufficient outcome, but it was positive. Right. I guess we really have to look at this. The cup is half full, not, not empty. I mean, we, it sounds like this is the first time there was really an explicit agreement that we need to address coal directly. It's 40% of the, of the problem. And this was the first time that what we have, but now we have a, a phase down goal for coal, I, I, I believe, right? Yeah, and I think the other commitments by many countries, over 100 countries, that they're no longer going to provide external financing for fossil fuel uh, projects is really key. The financial community was there claiming they represent $100 trillion in assets, claiming that they're also going to do likewise. They're not going to fund this development anymore. That, frankly, may have 
more of an impact than on what any specific country feels. Uh, that was a good outcome on that level. Very interesting. And then how did you feel about the deforestation? That, that, that seemed like a breakthrough from afar. Uh, definitely. Uh, the number of countries, again, over 100 that committed to uh, stopping deforestation by 2030 was, was critical. Uh, again, it's a step in the right direction. I think the devil, of course, is in the details. Uh, you know, that was one good thing. The, the over 100 countries committed to a uh, 30% reduction in methane by 2030 as well. Yeah. Uh, that was positive. Russia, China, and India have not yet signed on. Maybe they will. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, that didn't, didn't, didn't happen uh, fully either. So we'll see, have to see what happens coming up. I'm glad you in this podcast that you've kind of hammered on the reality that if all the countries just continued at the pace they're going on now, uh, we would, what we probably might be able to limit temperature rise to 2.4 degrees C. We're nowhere near the 1.5. And we're, like you said, we're at, we're at 1.1 right now. And we we're experiencing all sorts of climatic chaos around the world. Yep. Uh, the science is very compelling. Uh, and, and that was another positive takeaway. You didn't hear serious questions about the science of climate change and that humanity is definitely affecting the global climate system. Uh, again, perhaps 20 years too late for that universal recognition, but the old adage, better late than never. So Craig, how, I mean, you, you've given this a lot of thought. I mean, this process is not fast enough. It's not deep enough to solve our problems, I mean, what's your, what, if you could w wave your wand, uh, if you were the czar uh, of global climate, what would you do? How would you handle this? Well, there's one other major takeaway from COP26 that I think, I'm not saying it's a magic wand, but it's a major step in the right direction. And that's what's called the Article 6 rule book. Article 6 of the Paris Agreement of 2015 laid out a reliance on market-based solutions for addressing this crisis. Six years later, we finally got that rule book at Glasgow. And that's really important. Uh, many, many countries have indicated their intentions to rely on market-based solutions to address this problem. Uh, analyses that have been done have indicated that the cost of, of achieving uh, you know, global emission targets can basically be cut in half if, if we uh, have more viable market-based solutions like reliance on cap and trade programs. So, you know, that was a key takeaway uh, and, and success at COP26. Can you just explain you know, what that rule book, what is, what is the Article 6 rule book look like? I mean, is it- Yeah, a, it, it uh, seems pretty arcane, but it, it, it starts with the accounting rules among countries that if one country is going to allow another country to use a credit from its from its within its borders, you've got to have very clear accounting guidance on how that's going to be allowed. In other words, you can't let the host country account for it and another country account for that same mechanism, same reduction. That's just double counting. That's not getting us anywhere uh, or certainly uh, watering things down. So under what's called Article 6.2 uh, of, of that rule book, that accounting guidance will be set up uh, more clearly uh, to avoid that double counting issue. Uh, under uh, Article 6.4, there's also 
a new mechanism that's going to be in, uh, put in place that's essentially replacing what's called the clean development mechanism of the Kyoto Protocol. And a lot of the details of that remain to be worked out, but it's, it's how in, in both perhaps in a voluntary and compliance markets, uh, how do you uh, allow for the creation of emission reductions around the world and the trading of those emission reductions? As you know, here at the Climate Action Reserve, you know, we are an offset project registry. We're keenly interested in that. I think that's a, a silver lining because uh, I, while countries are dithering, frankly, on making serious enough commitments, there is a lot happening on the ground to address this problem. And we, we partly see that here in, in California, uh, but we see it worldwide that, uh, you know, renewable energy technologies for generating electricity frankly, are now more cost-effective than operating existing coal plants. So a massive investment in renewable can, can basically green our electrical grids. Virtually every uh, automaker on the planet is bringing electric vehicles to market. There are new startups in that space as well. If we can green our grid, green the transportation sector, we don't have to wait for countries to uh, agree on what their long-term goals are. Yes, it would be great to have national level policies facilitating all of this, but I think it's happening on its own right now. Uh, and that's roughly uh, two thirds of the problem right there. Is it enough? No. But the other commitments you were talking about, like reducing methane, stopping deforestation can also contribute to it. Uh, I, I think the other key component here is, is financing for the developing countries. They have a very, uh, uh, it's a fundamentally a question of environmental justice. The, this problem has been in, inflicted on the world by largely the richer countries. We all have to contribute to the solution, but that I think fundamentally means significant amount of capital investment in the developing world so that they can achieve development along a clean energy path and not have to rely on coal, oil, or gas to meet their needs. The answer, of course, is for them not to develop. The question is, how do we make sure they do it in a clean way? And, Fostering those north-south uh, climate investments is going to be very important, and it's one way to make sure that uh, there's an equitable outcome here. And it sounds like there was a discussion in, in Glasgow of creating a trillion-dollar fund by 2025 to do just that. Although the, crit the critics were saying, well, there's been prior commitments for the developing countries to, to uh, ante up $100 billion a year, and I guess that hasn't been happening. So... I guess this balance between pledges, <laughs> commitments, uh, expectations, uh, incrementalism. Well, you're absolutely right. There was a commitment of a hundred billion dollar a year green fund. Uh, and we don't yet even have pledges to meet that target. So the notion of a, uh, a trillion dollar fund is somewhat fanciful. But on the other hand, I was mentioning this article six rule book this trading of, of credits internationally, without getting into details, there will be some, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, taxation on, on the issuance of those credits to generate additional funds for adaptation around the world and further mitigation. Now, whether that's going to amount to a trillion dollars or not, I think remains to be seen. That's only one of the funding mechanisms. Don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to put the onus on, on those sources of revenue for the trillion dollars, but there are different ways to try to raise the funds here. And as you know, I, whether governments can come up with a trillion per year remains to be seen, but the, 
with the financial community understanding hopefully the magnitude of this problem and, and you know you're seeing that commitment with 130 trillion dollars in assets committed to clean uh, energy development you know at, in some respects you could think it's a drop in the bucket uh, trillion is a big number though we'll it have to see big, whether it comes to pass it is a big number and i and a critique of of the outcomes of cop is that a lot of people are saying well it these countries have to self-police the, the, themselves. But I'm, I think this Article 6 sounds like the rule book is really going to help establish a, uh, an understanding of how you can actually claim, claim credits and, and, and report your credits. Absolutely. You need that level of rigor to give people confidence in the outcome, uh, and you'll need it for proper accounting. You know, we don't yet have that international architecture for proper accounting. We know how to do it. We just have uh, a lack of political will so far to actually implement the, the, the systems. But every country, you're right, is it's uh, generally going to be self-policing. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how enforcement issues are handled when uh, either the direct rules and understanding are broken or, or some country uh, bends the rules to their, their preference. Well, I'm really glad that uh, after your, your fairly strong words about not pessimism, but the realism of the climate challenge, the enormity of the challenge, the, how far behind we are in the challenge, that you did rebound, Mr. Ebert, talking about the private sector. And I, I love that because you were talking about the greening of the utility sector. You're talking about the greening of mobility. I've been doing research lately on greening of cement and steel production, which is another 16% combined. And, and we, uh, we are starting to see so many private sector solutions that will that will will be lightning fast compared to waiting for our our global policymakers to reach consensus. That is absolutely correct. To me, that's the main cause for optimism. I've been working in this space for thirty five years, and when we first started on the very first reports to Congress, one of the main takeaways was so much we didn't even know what the solution set looked like. Now we know what the solutions are. It's it's a question of of the will to implement them. And, and it, it, it's a costly venture, but uh, you know, it, costs are relative. The costs we're imposing on the planet right now and the risks we're taking with our collective livelihoods far outweigh whatever investment it's gonna cost to create a clean energy economy. And, and as places like California have proven, you don't sacrifice economic growth for environmental benefit, particularly on the climate problem, if anything, it's a huge opportunity. You know, those companies that come up with cleaner energy solutions for, for the climate are going to do incredibly well. Uh, and those that don't will fall by the wayside. Uh, yeah. Much yeah. like 100 years ago, whatever happened to all the livery stables and saddle makers and bridle makers and what have you when we relied on horses to get around? Well, Henry Ford and others put them out of business. You know, that's the sign of progress, I guess. The, time, the times they are, the, the times they are changing, and the uh, the techno, the pace of innovation, the collective vision, the collective intelligence, uh, global intelligence is phenomenal. That's what that's what keeps me very optimistic in our in our line of work. Hey, let's wrap up with just a couple things about you, and um, I'm gonna I'm gonna you, you can say true or false. Born in Minnesota. True. Minnesota Vikings fan. Absolutely. Uh, went to school, University of Minnesota. True. And then Berkeley. True. And then moved to D.C. to work for ICF Consulting for 34 years. 
Absolutely. It's a great now, time. Now the head of Climate Action Reserve. And how do you maintain a balance in your life? <laughs> well, it's arguable whether I do maintain one. But, you know, one, I've got a passion for this issue, being able to work on climate for 35 years uh, uh, in and of itself is a reward. Uh, but everyone's got to carve time out to uh, enjoy life. Uh, right now, I'm uh, living a couple blocks from the beach in Oxnard. And uh, we, my wife and I, uh, Janie, love to go down to Mexico and wish we had more time for travel. But when COVID is hopefully under control, uh, we'll be doing more traveling. Thank you so much for all that you do, Craig, and uh, for, for being a good bud as well. Uh, this, has been, this has been a great episode of The Net Positive. I think people really will really enjoy your perspective. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ted, for the opportunity. Have a great one. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.